Hello. Hello. Oh, get out of my head. Dude, what's wrong with you? Book of Mormon opens with the Mormons ringing the bells on, like, going up and knocking. And it's like, and they, hello, hello, my name is Elder this. Oh, did we hello, ruin it for you? Hello. No, and, like, it's been stuck in my head for, like, two days. Oh, boy. And it's just like, that goes. I'm just like. <laughs> Would you feel better if I said hello? No. <laughs> I, went, I was like, yesterday in the car, I was like, I should just, like, do that and, like, make Sarah be like, what are you doing? <laughs> just... I'm going to keep this in. We are your hosts and favorite Salem tour guides. My name is Jeffrey Lilly. And I am Sarah Black. Today, we're going to be part two. Ing, part twoing, talking about uh, our second uh, Crucible bit, and that's going to be about the Crucible more than Arthur Miller, and we have a special guest with us today. Someone who gives specialty tours on the Crucible. She has been a resident of Salem for going on about three and a half years now. And a tour guide for almost three years. She has her own company, Dynamic History, a PhD in American Studies. Please welcome Rebecca Johnson. Hello, folks. It's a pleasure to be with you. Hello. How's how's your, your I don't know, day, week, year? My day, week, year has been amazing because I live in Salem, Massachusetts, and I am not being disingenuous. This is the first place that I've ever lived that I chose to come to just because I loved it, and then I figured out the rest, oh. um, and it has worked out beautifully. Um, and I am, like you, so thankful for our largest, biggest, most exciting and chaotic October yet. And I am as equally thankful that it is over. You're <laughs> here. here. It, it, it's, it's like trauma is bad, but you're like at the end of it, you're like, like I think we talked about this. You yeah. just like you, you ask someone how they're doing, and they're like, great, fine. But you ask like, me in a couple weeks. You can like see behind their yep. eyes. They're like, <laughs> but yes, we are now well into December, our holiday season. Were you guys? I was, I was, I was gone this past weekend. Either one of you out this past weekend? Um, I was out a little bit. I did a little bit of shopping at the Peabody Essex Museum shop. They always have it so cutely decorated for Christmas. So I was picking up some adorable stuffies for some small people in my life. Love it. Yeah, because then I, via the, the Instagram, I got to see uh, the Grinch was around and yep. Gingerbread Man and more Krampuses, um, Crampi. Crampins. Crampins, <laughs> whichever. Uh, and I was, because I was away, I was a little jealous. I was like, no, and that's one of the things, because Salem's so fun in October, but it's also so fun pretty much always. Especially in the lead-ups to the holidays, I did a little bit of shopping myself, and then we were blessed with our first snow blessed last night. Blessed is not the word I would use. Oh, it is the word I'm going to use. You can use that word all you want. I drove in it for three and a half hours. Oh, I do apologize. You did get the... It, it hit us. Uh, I was coming back from New York City. hit me in uh, uh, about Fairfield County, Connecticut, and I drove the entire way in a snow it, like I was just like as the storm moved I was just moving with it it was so fun I'm so sorry it sounds serendipitous but for those of you who could go and take a walk in the snow beautiful walking in a winter wonderland as they as they I heard that somewhere well I'm glad you made it here for this fine conversation we're gonna have I have to tell you Rebecca we were extremely excited to hear that you do tours on the crucible i know your company does a variety of different specialty tours but to hear that you were doing it at the same time that we were focusing on the crucible for the podcast it was just so it was serendipitous um i did not say that right but i tried 
But thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us and talk more about this topic. You are very welcome. I'm really pleased to be with you. So dynamic history of Salem, what do you what do you do? I mean, I know what you do. Tell, tell them what you do. <laughs> well, uh, like Sarah and Jeffrey, I talk for a living. Um, I walk around Salem. I tell stories. My company, I started to specialize in uh, two things specifically, small groups, so 15 or less. Um, and also, I try to make my tours as accessible as possible. Mobility is number one. Um, but if there's any other accessibility need that I can help, I, I want to do that. So I specialize primarily in private tours that people, you know, book. We agree on a, on a day and time together. And then I also have seasonal tours that I do. Um, the Crucible Tour is in partnership with the Salem Athenaeum, which is a historic private library uh, here in Salem. And I also do occasional fundraising tours based on specific topics. I don't want to go off on too much information here. I do have one coming up on December 26th. So please ask me about that before the end of the episode. Will do. And do you also do, cut this if I'm pop culture? I do, yeah. The entire month of October, I did a pop culture tour every Saturday. Um, and that was, I, I want to thank my guests again. It was such a success this year. I was donating a percentage of all of the proceeds to the Salem Pantry. Um, and oh, I, was very, I was very happy to make a good donation. Um, certainly more than I would have made personally. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's one of the benefits of having a company. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by many things about Salem, but also because my background is in American studies, when you study American culture from American studies, you essentially treat any cultural product that's produced by human beings as a text. And so it can be interpreted as a text. And so I'm fascinated by um, graphic novels, video games, novels, movies, television, right? All of the places where Salem is appearing in popular culture that not only says something about Salem, it says something about us. And so that's what I talk about in October because that is just in such profundity (laughs) around us. That's so cool because I don't think people think that deeply about what they're consuming, right? Maybe we are a little bit more aware in our age of misinformation and the internet, just what we're taking in and the lens in which all of those things are filtered through. But you have to do that through history, too. So as you're looking back 50 years, 100 years, 150 years, you can derive so much about the author, about the community in which it was produced, about that period of time, just from that source. And I think especially since so many people come to Salem to hear our stories, that it's even more important for us to take a critical lens about how Salem is being portrayed in different types of cultural media and ask ourselves, um, you know, we as tour guides have an advantage because we're the ones who actually get to talk to the public, um, you know, in a very detailed way. To ask ourselves, what are the implications? What are the assumptions that people are making in the way that Salem is being portrayed you know, in this newspaper article, in this video game, you know, Fallout 4 is one of my favorites, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or in this TV show. And are those the stories 
that we want people to know about Salem, right? Because that's part of the piece too. I loved on your episode about what caused the witch trials, which by the way, thank you so much for recording that episode. Thank you. (laughs) Everyone on our tours asks us that and it's such a complex answer and we don't have enough time to answer it. (laughs) It's almost like you can't answer the question. You really can't. And I loved that you brought up historiography, right? Which is really what we're talking about. The history of telling history. So I'm going to leave that hanging right there for a second. We'll come back to it. <laughs> and in, in taking all that into vain, that's sort of like where we, or why we're doing what we're doing today with, with the Crucible. Because like, it's a piece of, you know, American history. It's a piece of uh, Salem history, American literature. Uh, it's this play written by this person who has these ideas. He's American and his experience and uh, the time he wrote that. But also um, it's about Salem. It's about, and it's a, mostly historically accurate-ish. Uh, like there's big air quotes there for people who can't see me. But that ties pretty much everything you've just said into why we're doing what we're doing today uh, because all of those things apply. It's like he's telling a story of Salem, which is what most people's, if taking out like Hocus Pocus and the TV show Salem, uh, that's that's where most people get there. Right, and I think that's so interesting too because it's something that we're still learning about. Like if you walk into any number of high schools around the country right now, some of them are probably learning about the crucible, even though it was written 70 something years ago. Actually, we're coming up on the 70th anniversary, right? We are. Um, But we're still learning about it every year. So it is many people's first look at Salem. It's going to be a fun episode here to kind of pull apart some of those inaccuracies and talk about what it means today in our modern society. Might I ask how, when did you put together this crucible tour? I put it together about a year ago. Um, It was one of the first tours that I did. My company is very young. um, So I'm just a little bit older than a year old. This happy birthday. Thank you. (laughs) This tour is I almost said my favorite, but I'm sure you guys would hesitate saying that about different stories that you tell too. Um, There are so many good ones. I will talk more about this. There are some very specific reasons why I think that this is such a good story to discuss with the public, particularly within the context of what happened here in 1692. But the Athenaeum and I have been partnered for almost a year now. Um, doing this story, and we have more dates coming up in February and April. And I try to tailor them to times when homeschooled kids or public school kids might be on a break um, in case they want to come for that very reason, because so many people still read The Crucible as part of their curriculum. Right. Do you know what, I I get different, what uh, uh, age group that normally is. I get people who are like, oh, I read it, and I can never remember. I think it's like, usually sophomore, freshman, sophomore, sophomore, or sophomore, or junior year. Yeah, I read it. I read it when I was fifteen. I think juniors typically in Massachusetts anyway. Uh, uh, American history, right? Am I making that up? I'm not sure. But it's not in history. It's in it's an English class, right? But I think we we did like an American history. Sorry, in English in my junior year, we did an American history part of our. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think but that's so- also like sophomore or junior year, I think is I think usually. that's pretty standard. And of course if you're homeschooled, you know, your parents can introduce it to you 
whenever you're ready. On the tour, I usually recommend 12 or older just because there is adultery in the play. I'll tell you what, my best tour, one of the best tours I have ever given, it was my first school group ever, which was intimidating as all hell because I had never worked with kids before. How, how? Middle school, (laughs) which to me, I was even more terrified, had no idea what to expect. I hated middle school. So did I. Yeah. Get this. They were a theater group who had been assigned the crucible. And they had all been given their characters. So it, in fact, was, it was a blast. They, as we were going through the stories, say we're talking about Giles Corey. Whoever got assigned Giles Corey is freaking out. And everyone's like, oh, Giles, it's Giles. They were just so into it. So I do appreciate it that it can be used as not only a tool in the English classroom, Mm -hmm. but there are kids around the country, around the world that are acting it out even. I wonder how they tackled the adultery thing in middle school. It doesn't actually take place during the play. Right. It's after the fact. So very right. subtle. You, you could probably just snip like a few lines and make it kid friendly. Yeah. Yeah. Or even just change a few like <laughs> we we were walking together, which I mean. It's like, <laughs> neighbors she, murdering neighbors. Easy to make kid friendly. <laughs> yeah, I'm concerned about the adultery. They are murdering I people. Mean, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Our, our culture has a very weird dynamic with that. and It's, it's odd to, to try and wrap our heads around sometimes. The murder, okay, sex, bad. Yes. Concept. There, there is something uniquely American about that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, spending time in another country, it, it doesn't matter. Like nudity or sex is much more uh, uh, open and talked about. But here, murder, fine, sex, bad. I remember you can cut this if you want. I was watching a, a TV show, uh, old the, the the Hannibal show. I was watching like a critique of it, and I guess there was a scene where you could see a little too much crack in, in, in the back, and so to fix that, they just put more blood on the scene, mm-hmm. which was totally acceptable to the to the rating, but the the little bit of butt crack was too much. Too much. So adultery bad, murdering neighbors. We're good. Mm-hmm. Welcome to American history. Yeah, you can you can absolutely <laughs> put that on television. Not a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so without giving too much away about the tour, because I want people to go, you know, mm. take it, see it for themselves. Don't want to spoil anything. But could you talk a little bit about how you incorporate the play into your tour? Yes. So it starts off with a walking tour, and we we meet at the Salem Witch Trials Memorial by Charter Street Cemetery. And I kind of take them through the background broadly of how the hysteria played out. Um, And then along the way, as we're walking toward the Athenaeum, we stop at various other significant places where I can talk about, you know, this is where the meeting house was. This is where the courthouse was. This is where John Hawthorne lived. This is where Jonathan Corwin, you know, the two judges lived. Um, And along the way, essentially what I'm trying to do is give them background in the build up to what happened before 1692, because the hysteria doesn't happen in a vacuum, which you've already talked about very well. (laughs) So much context there. There's so much leading up to it. And I also try to give them, first I should say, I think what is most effective about doing a walking tour like this in downtown Salem is that you're in downtown Salem. You don't have a lot of visual markers of what it looked like then. You do have some. 
right? You have the witch house or Jonathan Corwin's house. But you're walking on the street and you know that almost 400 years ago, those people were walking down Essex Street in the same direction toward Gallows Hill, toward their deaths. They weren't walking. They were on an ox cart, but you know what I mean, right? Mm -hmm. So just the being there, I think, helps people situate the meaning of the play. The sense of place. Exactly. And then I also try, partly because of my background and partly because I just think that it helps people understand the why a little bit better and relate to the the characters as humans, I do talk about theology, (laughs) which is not popular. Um, And so I don't, you know, say that blatantly on the website, like, I'm going to give you a little introduction to Christian theology. Uh Um, It can be very unpopular, depending on. Yes. (laughs) I love it. Um, But I did, you know, in my background, I was at seminary. And so when I was first introduced to the Puritans, I was introduced to them as, you know, the people that essentially brought Protestantism to the new world, right? And their covenant theology is part of that context that you guys have been talking about. And so I don't dwell on it, but I give them what they need to understand this was their theological worldview, right? And we all have a theological worldview, whether we think of it that way or not, whether we belong to a religion or not. We have an idea of, are humans inherently good? Are they inherently evil? Or is it some mix of both? You know, why are we here? All of the big questions, that's our theological worldview. And we either think about it explicitly or we don't, but it's there, Mm -hmm. right? And a lot of it is given to us by our culture. So I try to help them understand what's their worldview, because then everything that happens leading up to 1692, they're going to filter that through that worldview. And that's going to then impact the reactions that they have. Right. You can't just look at them and say, you know, these people were stupid. This is what this is how they believed. You have to put yourself in their mindset at the time, which is difficult, but we do the best we can with the tools that we have. Well, and we absolutely, we don't have to do that, right? You can visit Salem, you can go on a tour, and you can roll your eyes and think those people were nuts and move on with your day and go eat at Rockefeller's and not give it a second thought. I mean, you can do that, right? There's no rule against that. No one's stopping you, and people do do that. The three of us in this room, I think, would encourage people not to because you're missing out on something far more interesting. But you know, I mean, both of you know, that history is not going to be of interest to people unless it feels relevant to their lives now. It really, I mean, in a lot of ways, and I don't mean this in a bad way at all, history doesn't matter if it's not relevant to you right now. And so what we're essentially talking about, I think, is in our jobs focusing on how do we help people see why it's relevant? What's that human connection that people can make with the Puritans, which to your point is not easy because they are not easy people to feel compassion for? (laughs) Yeah, no. (laughs) No, I couldn't agree more. I'm very much a proponent of bottom-up history. Like we have spent millennia championing these big figures throughout time, usually men, usually white men, the battles and the empires. And you see the same things over and over again, but it's not until you bring it down to a level that makes us feel like we were there. Like when you start talking about the individual, 
the families, the child, the teenager that goes off to war or the family struggling in the depression. Like if you look at the person and the humanity aspect of it, that's when you can really start to connect. Have you ever thought about how different it would be if we had, you know how in the Great Depression, um, some of those wonderful photographers, and I apologize because their yep. names are on the tip of my tongue and I can't think of them, gave us those gorgeous photos. Yes. Of just like the people standing in line and those, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the people just on a barren wasteland that used to be their farm fields, right? If we had photographs of these people in jail, can you imagine how different it would be talking to people about this story? Like it would just be complete night and day because there would be a face, right? It would be so humanized. So we do the best that we can with our words. I do tend to get heavy. I did mention that I studied <laughs> theology. You all have my apologies. <laughs> that, that's getting people. It's another thing. You got to get them to connect, but then you also have to get them to think and, and reflect. I, I like to use the word invite, right? This uh, is, this is yes. a safe space. We, we all like to have fun. Every, every one of us in this room likes to have fun. I was going to say, not, not the Puritans. They, they don't like to have fun. <laughs> um, so it's not, it's not all theology and, and murder, uh, neighbors murdering each other, right? But yeah, there's an invitation. I think that we can create fun and safe spaces where people feel comfortable making those emotional connections. That for me is one of the goals because then I feel like people are taking that home with them. Even if they don't remember the details of the story that we talked about, even if they never read The Crucible again or they never see the movie, right? They may go home and the next time that they see something on the news, they may ask themselves, oh my gosh, there's a group of people who are in the most stressful situation in their lives. What would I do if I were in that situation, right? Because you can take the things that you talk about and then apply them to the, the things that you're actually seeing every day. Because... People who are not like us are not thinking about the Puritans every day. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I try and there's a few points in my tour where I try and relate it to like a like a, a modern understanding. Um, a lot of it comes down to the girls, uh, but you know the 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 court system, right? I'm like, you, you, there's no defense. You're like, you watch a court system, your idea of a going like that's not what's going on. Um, you know, the girls are they live in this uh, uh, oppressive lifestyle. There is no TikTok. There is no dancing. There is no, you know, it's like, oh, we're going to the beach for a day. These people aren't, and they're like, people look at me like, I'm like, you're all on vacation here. That's, that's not, they didn't take, take vacation. And you're, and people are like, what? And like, they, they start when they sort of are better able to, to sort of understand that. I also searched uh, in the past two years, I've also sort of been able to, to, to the end of my tour, you like, you know, uh, we all went a little stir crazy during whatever lockdown we experienced. You're all trapped inside. It's the middle of winter. They're not going sledding. They're not, you know, taking the week off to go up to Stowe to go. And people like, you can see it. They're like, oh, from my personal experience, now I, I can relate a little more. And that's like what you said. Absolutely. Like, oh, you, you see the little light bulbs. So you start with a walking tour. And then you head to the Athenaeum? Yes. Um, so Athenaeums uh, were common in the 
17 and 1800s. They were private libraries um, assembled usually by men. Um, wealthy men. Wealthy men, yeah. yep, who could afford books. There's one in Boston. That's where Ralph Waldo Emerson was hanging out back in the day. And ours here in Salem dates back um, further than the building that it's in. The building is from the early 20th century. It's a beautiful building on Essex Street, not far from the Witch House, for those of you who are visiting. But uh, the original co- collection was primarily from maritime merchants because they were the ones with the with the most books. So we end there because they have a beautiful reading room. I go there for the atmosphere, the, the books surrounding us. We uh-huh. sit in cozy chairs and then we have a book discussion. Also a nice way to escape the cold. A very nice way to escape the cold, yes. So a book discussion, um, obviously they have to like not saying they have to, but do you encourage them to read the play beforehand? Yes, it is an unusual walking tour in that there is homework beforehand. Okay, <laughs> just wanted to get that um, out of the way. You you don't have to read the play, though. If you want to rewatch the 1996 film with Winona Ryder and Daniel Day-Lewis, that's totally fine. I had one gentleman uh, listen to the Audible performance, which actually has Richard ah. Dreyfus. As... It's, he you know. is... Um, Oh, I apologize. I just listened to it. I'm trying to remember if he's Reverend Hale. I'll get back to that. I'll get back to that. But it is very enjoyable. It's only abridged slightly. So that's a really nice option. I don't want anybody, again, with accessibility, I don't want anybody to feel like they can't come because they haven't really sat down and read The Crucible recently. Um, I just, I want you to feel like you have something to add to the discussion. And then, of course, I, you know, my background is in college education, so one of my favorite things to do is facilitate discussions, but I try to keep myself out of it as much as possible and just let people talk about what is meaningful to them. Which is unique to a walking tour here. Because yeah, normally we're just talking to them, talking to them, take yeah. like two questions, thanks, carry on with your day. Exactly. But they get a chance to actively participate. Yes. Is there any story that sticks out in your mind of one of these discussions that really... There was like a moment where you saw the aha moment. One of, I think I've done the tour six times, five or six times. Mm-hmm. Um, I always have small groups. Part of that is because I'm brand new and still finding my audience. And part of it is because I limit it to eight people just because I want us to be comfortable in the reading room. There was a woman on my tour who just brought such insight into our discussion of the cultural context that gave rise to the hysteria, she had grown up in Ireland and she compared it to the Troubles. And just talking about what her family experienced and the way that the older people in her family talked to her about what was happening um, and kind of how they then carried that with them across to the United States when they came. I think that was one of the most beautiful modern day comparisons that anybody had ever drawn. Uh, between the situation that led up to the hysteria and that led up to the troubles. I, I was really, really touched by that. And it, it was one of those moments when, as a tour guide, I was just so pleased to turn the conversation over to the folks who were on the tour. Because once you, once you get drawn in by the crucible, this is what I found, mm-hmm. not only for myself, but the people on the tour. Once you get drawn in, you suddenly see the connections in your own life and you can't stop seeing them. And I think that that's one of the reasons why this play is still so relevant. And why Arthur Miller was such a brilliant man. Insightful. Wow, that's that's powerful. And I don't think the average person would draw that line between the crucible 
and Ireland. I certainly hadn't. But I I hadn't till you just said it now, which of course it makes sense. But that's why conversation is important, right? I think in the middle of October, it's a little bit difficult, I'm guessing. Don't let me put words in your mouth. I'm guessing it's a little bit difficult for all of us um, to feel like we're inviting people into a conversation because there's total and utter chaos going on around yeah. us. Mm-hmm. So it's enough It's enough just to have the guests on your tour be able to pay attention to you. Yeah. Um, but I think that one of the lovely... And this is what I keep coming back to, so I apologize if I'm being redundant. One of the lovely things about being a tour guide is that we are the ones who are on the front lines talking to the people who are visiting our city, and this goes for any city, right, about the stories. Uh And so we are literally going out into the streets and inviting people into conversation, and what a huge opportunity that is. With a person. No one likes getting on to file a complaint or get a hold of their electric company or something and they end up with an automated message like everyone's always trying to get a human on the other line so when you come to Salem to be able to hear it from a person to be able to ask questions Mm -hmm. there's a whole different level to that and nothing against museums or anything but a lot of the responsibility is on that person to take in that information on their own if you go into an exhibit you have to read all those labels yourself yeah, there's, there's not a question answered exactly phase in the in the museum experience not to not there is sometimes there is sometimes but, but not, yeah you just listen to you know push 1a for more information and that's that's yeah. that's your question answer session yeah exactly it's part of um i think the way that i think of it it's part of the new interest in conscious tourism and this was something that i first became aware of when i was teaching environmental science many years ago ecotourism had started to become popular in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, right? Like seeking out places because of the environment? Exactly, because of their beautiful biodiversity, usually. Um, And, you know, ways to visit so that you don't disturb the environment, but you get to see it and appreciate it, right? Conscious tourism, um, and I encourage anybody to Google this, it's really interesting, People are interpreting it in different places, in different ways. But it's more about when you're visiting the place, don't be focused on what you're going to take. Be focused on what you're going to immerse yourself in. So it's just adding a little layer of intention. Why am I going to this place? Like, yes, I want to buy the witch hat and I want to buy the wand and... Um, you know, I, I want to go on a walking tour. I want to see the House of the Seven Gables. But thinking about what are the stories here that I can potentially connect with? And is anything that I hear about here that happened in Salem going to be able to relate to me when I go back home to Chicago or to Los Angeles or wherever I'm from, right? And so that kind of person-to-person conversation like you're talking about, I think that really opens that opportunity to invite people into conscious tourism and get them in a friendly, fun way, right? Mm -hmm. To start thinking about, hey, why are you here? Yeah, you can still wear the witch hat. You can still do all that. But having a conversation about what brought you here in the first place. Yeah, what are you interested in? What Maybe you know that a certain thing has piqued your interest. Have you ever thought about why? Why is it that thing that's interesting you? Is that related to something that's meaningful to you? And then that helps them deepen their experience. And then it also, you know, 
gives you the opportunity maybe to share a little bit more than you than you would otherwise. It's not always possible, right? Because some of what we do is performance. Some of what we do is in front of large groups and it's not always the right place for that. But mm-hmm. um, this particular tour that I designed, that's kind of my motivation behind it. Yeah. So let's peel apart some of the discrepancies between the history and Arthur Miller's story. As we said, this is definitely a lot of folks is their first encounter with the Salem witch trials, but it's not always, well, it isn't the most accurate. So So, uh, also, are there a significant amount of discrepancies between the play and the movie? Because I'm guessing, I, I I noticed a few. Not too, too much. Arthur Miller wrote both the play, yeah. obviously, but and the screenplay for the film. Mm-hmm. I did read that there was a change in Giles Corey's uh, storyline, where in the play, he's going to be pressed to death because he won't enter a plea, which we all know is the history. Um, but in the movie... It's because he won't give up any other names, like any other witnesses, which is something that Arthur Miller would have overseen. But, you know, 50 years or so, who knows? But just also because so I would guess that probably most people have seen the movie. Um, I'm guessing that proportionally uh, that the listeners will not have read or or seen the the play itself. Uh, So if we just make sure to if they're like, what, this wasn't in the movie. Right, right. Make that distinction. For sure. For sure. But discrepancies i don't know what, what was do we just want to go around and name like the biggest one? Oh my gosh the biggest one is abigail williams <laughs> <laughs> i i think this might be like one of the biggest like we've talked about what's what's the question you get asked the most on tour this Ugh. this might be like within the wheelhouse of what do you get asked so so abigail williams and, and i ask people why do you think the witch trials kicked off like what started them and i have had people dead serious to me say well didn't that young girl have that affair with john proctor <laughs> like no uh, no <laughs> like okay she was 11 he was 60 so well um, well and jeffrey you have to be careful how you say it as i'm sure you have found too if you start off by saying well he was 60 and she was 11 then people are horrified <laughs> How you have to start the conversation uh, yeah. is there was no adultery. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Before Otherwise, we people really get scared that she's yeah. a child. Yeah, that's a that's a good. Yeah, that never happened. So yes, he was not this dashing young Daniel Day Lewis. I think he's described as around thirties, but yeah, he was sixty years old at the time, mm-hmm. and Abigail was eleven. So there was there was no affair or adultery. She she was also, from what I can find, never a servant in the Proctor household. Yeah, I've never, I've never seen anything about that either. I I think one thing that I find interesting, and we'll get more into this, is how Arthur Miller takes historically accurate information and puts those roles on other people. So, so he very much slims down the characters from the actual history to the to his novel. So we get a lot of the people who are doing oh there there was a servant in the household who then gets in trouble with and you're like, yeah, these are things that or this person did the Goody Putnam and her children. There was people who had lost uh, infants and lost children. So it's like, yeah, these are all these things that these people are experiencing. But instead of having it cover a range of fifty different people, he has it cover like a range of like five different people. 
Which makes sense yes. for you know the logistics of yeah. putting together a play. <laughs> I believe the original cast was 21 cast members. I could be mistaken on that. But you have to tell a very intimate story, but at the same time, a very large story. Like, let's be honest, he's telling the story of the trials, or at least trying to, almost in its entirety. You see it from beginning to end, or at least what you think is the end. We can talk about the executions in a second <laughs> An- here. Another, another discrepancy. But yeah, just as he has to smush a, a year's time or so into an hour and a half play, he has to smush 150 people, their experiences and their intricacies and details into a handful of folks. And then he also has to make it relevant to the 1950s. Yes. If they had been looking for a sin that somebody would have felt really, really bad about, adultery would have been a good example. And so since he is smushing so many real-life people into few characters, and John Proctor is going to be his protagonist. If he's going to need that guilt, that weight of sin pressing on him, why not have it be adultery? Because that'll be something I'm guessing that everybody would have immediately recognized and said, ah, that's something. That's something that would have gotten him to Because a lot of the other things like, you know, the the land issues or property disputes or you know cattle dying or you know know, that's probably not as relevant to an audience but a love affair (laughs) yep yeah love affairs are perennial and a love affair with the age difference too i think that speaks to and not to stereotype but this idea of the husband going off and finding a young you know hot younger version of his wife I'm sure that was definitely in the minds of a lot of women in the 50s. I think it is a stereotype. I think that Arthur Miller's Abigail, in a lot of ways, is a stereotype. So the adultery is the big discrepancy. Uh, any, any other? There, there's several other small ones that, that I picked up. There are, I believe, a few ways that Reverend Paris is involved that yeah. he would not have been historically. Um he was in the courtroom. I know he was taking some of the notes, but his influence um, with, I believe he's Lieutenant Governor Danforth in the play, yeah. um, and his frequency of talking to him is, I don't think, quite historically accurate. Of course, it wasn't Lieutenant Governor Danforth in 1692 either. It was um, Judge Stoughton. Yeah, 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 no, no, but it wasn't, um, you asked me this while we were watching it. They didn't call him... And like I Googled it and I looked at oh, it. Oh, Lieutenant Governor. They no. were, so they were calling him, what were they calling him? I mean, Deputy was, Governor. Deputy Governor. Deputy, yes. Thank you. That's and they're like, was. that wasn't, they I was were like, calling was that a thing? That wasn't a thing. And also just the fact that his character is basically William Stoughton, yeah. yes. who is widely regarded as one of the most ruthless of the court. Yeah, if, if he'd has it, the court. <laughs> if he'd has it, the if he'd had his way, would have been been very different. I will say that whether it's historically accurate or not, I really, really enjoy Samuel Paris in The Crucible. It is so cathartic seeing him be such a puppet. Just he's uh, he's just he's kind yes. of like he's he's just kind of like a wet sock puppet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he's just. <laughs> well, I, I, I very I enjoyed his role, so his role 
in the historical or the actual historical accounts, it, it doesn't end with when people start getting arrested, but he is not as involved as, as the crucible portrays him. However, his, the importance of his role prior to that and his sermons and how he was, you know, trying to be the, the cool kid. I, maybe that's not the best description, but he wanted to be relevant. He wanted to be liked. He was trying, he'd, you know, with, with his father and the failed businesses in Boston, he's like, I gotta be the guy. And he's, you know, not bootlicking per se, uh, oh no, a hundred percent. I'd say a hundred percent. Right. It was kind of nice. To, like I, I agree with Rebecca. It was so, nice but we to don't, see. We don't get to see that narrative really ever. Cause you don't get to, you don't see what he was doing in 1690 and 1691. You see a very brief role of his in 1692 and then he's not one of the judges. So his, he kind of takes like this back step historically speaking and, but then in the movie they're like, no, no, he was very relevant. So we're going to, put him into this relevant position in the, 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 the play. And so you do get to see how he was behaving. You get to see him behaving ridiculous. And it's just, <laughs> yep. very, it's just very cathartic. Yeah. Because, you know, historically speaking, he probably did have such an impact on what happened. Yep. That now sitting from the 21st century, it's so nice to just see him being a ridiculous character. I mean, I think Danforth at one time actually says like, Paris, you are just, I can't remember. <laughs> I was trying to find it right now in the book. He literally says something like, Paris, you are just a ridiculous man. Like something like that <laughs> is actually in one of the scenes. Well, I'm glad someone else noticed. I know. I'm like, Arthur Miller, thank you for it's that. It's like that retribution. Made me feel a little bit yeah. better. Yeah, that's great. Uh, three judges. Yeah. Not... Slim down. Yeah. Actually, I think there might be four. I'll be honest with you. I haven't counted. Okay. I think I, I, I remember seeing the picture of... You got Seawall, Danforth, Hathorne. And Paris. No, I mean, Paris, he, Paris isn't considered a judge, that, though. He's up there, though. Oh, no, I know who you mean. I can, a, I, can picture, I can picture the guy. And I know one of them, I think it's Seawall, steps away and offers criticism throughout mm-hmm. the play, which we know at least one judge did. And another interesting note on the people in power here, bringing Reverend Hale into it in the way that he did, Arthur Miller, I'm like, dude, why? I mean, I guess for what I would assume that he saw Reverend Hale's book, uh, Modest Inquiry into Witchcraft, and really honed in on that piece and built a character based off of that. But it was striking because there's no Cotton Mather you know, yeah. there's no mention of Mather at all. I, I appreciated Hale's role and especially the books he had. And I like that, that sort of line of how the devil is torn apart, born witness to, um, stripped bare. So that the, the texts oh, yes, yes, yes. That, that he has, and he, I guess in, yep. he, he brings in several books. I think that there's one note of him like carrying in several books and I'm like, no one's no one's carrying around several books in, in Salem in 1692. Cotton but, Mather, not unless they're rich. Very, and but carrying them around, like bring them to. So he brings them uh, to the household, and I believe it's it's um, uh, Goody Putnam's. Like what's what's in there? And he's like, it's in these pages that, that the devil is um, uh, stripped bare, and, and we can we can interpret him, and we know specifically because of these texts 
what he can and cannot do. So it shows that influence of the books that we've talked about yes. on the podcast before, yeah. their influence on the Puritans yeah. and their witch hunting and he's techniques. he's like, it's here, it's in text. This is, it, it's like this evidence-based, I mean, it's not evidence-based research, but it's... it's evidence-based <laughs> for them. It was, yeah. may I quote? Yes, yes. yes. Uh, here is all the invisible world, caught, defined, and calculated... In these books, the devil stands stripped of all his brute disguises. There we go. Yeah. I re- I, and you're like, it, it's not it's not something that, but it, it's so relevant and it's so real. And you're like, that's exactly how it, how it was. It was very well done. And the invisible world yeah. was so real to them. Yeah, the supernatural and the natural were completely interwoven. I think that's one of the things that not everyone on our tours can relate to. I start by the... Uh, a town hall, and you know, I'm like, oh, and I start my my tour by like, oh, hocus pocus, da da da, witches, and I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not. Stop, stop thinking of that. And people are like, what? I'm like, they thought it was there, and I talk about the invisible world briefly, but you know, I like to sort of try and dispel that, aha, you know, narrative before we even get started. Like, get that out of the way. What else? What else do we have for for discrepancies? I can remember a few more off the top of my head. Uh the dancing. Around the fire at oh, the beginning. Man. That could be like a whole episode right there. So, yep. so, so the whole beginning <laughs> scene is just wrong, just made up. But so I was like, why did Arthur Miller put this in? And I remember reading that Charles Upham's work was very much an influence to him. Mm-hmm. And one of the first snippets before you even hit page one, it's like in the the prelude is talking about the girls dancing around a fire. And I have the quote. Oh, yes. Give it to us. And I'm like, okay, so this makes sense. Arthur Miller sees this. Of course he's going to put it into his story. So this is written by Charles Upham. During the winter of 1691 and 1692, a circle of young girls had been formed who were in the habit of meeting at Mr. Paris's house for the purpose of practicing palmistry and other arts of fortune-telling and of becoming experts in the wonders of necromancy, magic, and spiritualism. Of course. So that's how he kicks off the whole story. It would make sense that if Arthur Miller came across this, why wouldn't you open up a play on that? It is a very arresting first scene in the film. Um, I hadn't seen the film in a long time. I just rewatched it in preparation for this. And I was emotionally wrapped up in what was happening. It was visually arresting. And it's interesting, too, thinking about how Hale does play such a big role in the play, whereas he's kind of on the outskirts. He's only at the very beginning of what happens historically. And I might be mistaken, but I was just double checking online. I think it's Mary Beth Norton's book in the devil's snare. Mm-hmm. She mentions that in Hale's book, he's talking about other young girls in the colony that had been using the Venus glass to mm-hmm. figure out who their husbands yes. were. And then people later misinterpreted him. And I, I, I might be mistaken. No, you're 100% I don't know, right. I don't know if this, Upham is the one who mistook him. This is something I have to rework in my tour, believe it or not. Like I recently stumbled upon this, and it was, in fact, another 
group of girls yes. prior to the trials that were partaking in that, you know, you drop the egg white mm-hmm. in the glass of water, mm-hmm. stir it around, trying to discover who their future husband is. But that is a very different thing than having your Native American slave light a fire in the middle of the woods, disrobing and dancing around it and throwing live animals into the pot to make a spell, which is the opening scene of the crucible. <laughs> so I think one of my biggest uh, critiques of that scene, it's the middle of winter. Yeah, we have <laughs> talked about this. <laughs> if all of this had played out, m- not not March, March is still, win- April, May, right? May, June, and or it's, uh, July, August, and, and these girls are out, out dancing. No one's, no one's out in January doing that. I mean. Well, not only that, but let me know if you guys agree her whole animal sacrifice situation, very voodoo-esque. Absolutely. And voodoo came after the witch trials. That is not something that I know about. My apologies. I believe it started after the witch trials. And of course it was down in New Orleans, um, you know, the crossover between African culture, heritage, and Catholicism. And I I could also be wrong on this if we're all speaking out of, I believe it it has... uh, Haitian origins, but I I could also be wrong on that one. I think that what we're getting onto here is one of the main differences between the play and what actually happened in the play and also in the 1996 film, Tichuba is played by an African-American. Yeah. Whereas all of the evidence points to her being indigenous. Right. Right. So we don't know what color her skin was. We know that she was other right, from the English Puritans. So it was easy for them to other her and and accuse her. But I think that's probably another bit of 1950s context. I, I think Miller definitely pushes her role on the audience so that they knowingly or, or otherwise uh, interpret her role as, as the other. It, I mean, we're going to probably do a whole episode on, on Tichaba. Oh, we are doing a whole episode it's, on Tichaba. It's going to be fun. <laughs> but it's very hard. People are always like, well, why did she do this? And I'm like, dude, I don't know. You know, like, I mean, everything we know about her is written by other. We don't have her journals. We don't know, you know, she is a, an, an enslaved person. We don't, the, 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 our best tool is deciphering what other people have said about her through the historical lens of that person and of the time to try and better understand who this character is. And that's, that's not easy. No, but it is, um, it's a powerful way to start a play. Yeah. You know, it really sets the tone in my opinion for the kind of ecstatic energy that the girls bring to the play and to the courtroom in particular. Um, oh, some of those courtroom the scenes spectacle that they provide. Yep. Um, and that really, it really helps you understand why everybody would have found the whole thing so convincing and arresting because nobody else would have been acting like that in their society. I enjoyed seeing Paris um, encounter them in the woods. And it was in the movie is very, very well done where we almost feel what he's feeling, right? He's like looking and, and he's in shock and we're like, what is, and we're put into that same role and given that same feeling i think the girls did a fabulous job of their portrayal and abigail williams when 
now I'm speaking to the movie in particular, Winona Ryder, because I've never, I will say I've never seen it in person, like mm-hmm. on stage, but I have seen the movie. Winona Ryder gave a fabulous performance. The commitment that these girls gave to these actual performances in 1692, like it did feel real to the people that were watching. Like how do you get a a city to turn on itself and execute several of even its highest members? And people genuinely believe these girls. I enjoyed Winona Ryder, I remember several times, where she did such an excellent job of us as the audience being able to watch her and we know that she's bullshit. And she's like, but then the way she reacts to the situation is to further her own personal go- whatever. And she's like, and it's very, very well done. You can very quickly see she's like, and then she'll just start shouting and pointing a finger and you're like, oh, shit, that's a little scary. She's a master manipulator. Yeah. The yeah. character. Yeah. Oh, and how about Abigail Williams fleeing the scene? Oh, okay. At the end of, at the, end of the play? Slash movie. So so what is it? And I, I don't think I, I meant to get to the bottom of it, and, and I forgot, so you could probably speak to the accuracy. Takes his wealth and flees to England? What? What? Where does, where does that come from? Well, um, <laughs> I think that it fits in with the, um, the stereotype of the young seductress that Arthur Miller makes Abigail Williams into in the play. Of course, she can't stay around and and bear the sin. No, because the tide the tide changes, right? Um, during the trials, people are grateful to the afflicted because they believe that they are essentially helping to trap the devil. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, by making the invisible visible for the court, and so people feel friendly toward them. And then the more and more people start to be hanged, particularly in the crucible, many, many people are hanged in the crucible more than actually historically were. Um, As that continues and people are dying and nobody feels like anyone is safe, then the tide starts to turn against the afflicted. And Abigail Williams essentially is a master manipulator, so she reads the room and she gets out of town. There's no historical accuracy in that, right? There's not. I don't think so. I don't. No. no, But then, but then it opens up this whole other conversation when you think about what really happened—the fact that she had to stay here. And yes, there was no adultery, but people did recognize after the fact that what they had done was wrong, like that they were wrong. And there will be a public apology. There will be that day of fasting at the end of the century. The lawsuits that went through. People understood that this was wrong. So it yeah. makes you wonder what she would have endured and what all the other accusers would have endured. But then you also have to talk about the fact that people were trying to cover this up and it was kind of hush hush. So it's just, it's such an interesting snippet that we don't get to see. And then yeah, he, absolutely. He kind of outcasts Paris, and I, I, I can't quite remember what happens to him afterwards in the play. Oh, that's a good question. Because I, I, I remember uh, as I was re- uh, skimming through the play, I was like, that that wasn't right. Doesn't it just end with those executions? It does end with the executions, but there is, um, in my edition, which is the Penguin Classics, um, 
there's kind of a little addendum at the end written by Arthur Miller called Echoes Down the Corridor. Um, and he says, not, all, not long after the fever died, Paris was voted from office, walked out onto the high road, and was never heard of again. <laughs> okay, there. I mean, that's pretty accurate. <laughs> well, he went to Stowe, he went to Dunstable, he uh, went, mm, there's another town. And of course, I'm only caring about that because I grew up next to those towns. Um, and I was like, that, he was, he was there, you know, uh, yeah. as, as I learned further down the road. Um, so it wasn't, wasn't quite, uh, he was still, he was pushed to the side, but he, he continued to, to, to preach for years. He was there for a surprisingly long amount of time yeah. in my mind <laughs> so, so before you, he finally left. So you said that more people were executed in the crucible than they were in real life. It's Do implied, you, yeah. It's implied, uh, this is in Act 3. Hale says um, that he has signed 72 death warrants. Wow. And so that's one of the things that I think Arthur Miller needs there to be that many death warrants because of where he's going with the character Hale, because Hale's conscience changes. And so he essentially can't live with the fact that, oh my gosh, if Mary Warren, if there's even a possibility that she's telling the truth, mm-hmm. that all these people are lying, I am going to hell because I've condemned potentially 72 innocent people to die. So Danforth, please look into this. And he really switches. He switches, Which yes. isn't entirely inaccurate because the real Reverend Hale from Beverly, he did change his tune as well. After. 72. Although what I find interesting is he doesn't have a, a, a Mather character. So he doesn't have... Um, Hale is the Mather character. Right. Uh, but he doesn't have, the, he's also the Corwin character, sort of, and Paris is the Corwin character. Paris is more of the Corwin character. But the signing the death warrants is Corwin's, so we have this. Oh, yes. Yeah. Which Corwin? It's very weird. Sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> no, sorry, no, sorry. no I've totally got you. The, yeah, yeah. So, so that burden then lays the deaths of the people, the deaths of the innocent then lay on... Uh, the minister, and not on the sheriff. Right. The sheriff is just, like, non-existent. Which I noticed is, they kind of made Ezekiel Cheever sheriff-esque yeah. in the play. Which, what an interesting guy to pull out of the records. Like, no one knows. No one really talks about Ezekiel. No. But we, we I think we have mentioned him when we were talking about the court records. He's I was going to say, I think He's maybe, one of the main people that records. Were we uh, talk, maybe with Nurse? Who were we? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. He's come up quite a few times. Yeah. One of the things that I notice, and if you want to jump in here as well, sorry, um, is the difference of the end of the play and the end of the movie. So the fact that at the end of the play, it's John Proctor being carted off, right. so led it's, it's, away from his it's wife. It's that last final conversation, which to me also reminds me, um, and I think we talked about this sort of briefly last week, of that conversation and that, that, that scene is reminiscent both of um, Death of a Salesman and... Where he's like falling on his sword. All, all my children. All no, my sons. All my sons. I'm like, all my children. <laughs> like, all my children. <laughs> I'm like, it's in my head. I'm like, that's wrong. All my sons. And it's that last... Th- those those are very similar scenes. Um, it's not a direct suicide, but he knows exactly where that road is going to take him and how that's going to end. He, he saw a way out and, and he, he goes the, the other way. Um, but, but, the, but in the movie, a little different. Yeah. He ends up on a cart with Martha Corey 
and Rebecca Nurse, and they are carted off. To the execution site. They're about to be hanged, and they start in unison saying the Lord's Prayer. Right, which I, I very much appreciated. Very powerful. Yeah, uh, especially since that, that Lord's Prayer, that we've talked about that before, and how that did happen uh, on the gallows. Um, but it was George Burroughs. Yes. Yeah, like what? <laughs> but again, here we have Arthur Miller taking those historically accurate pieces of information and putting them on different characters. I remember reading in the research, Arthur Miller, of course, he likens the crucible to the McCarthy era. He's like, I was writing it during a time where you would cross the street if you saw someone that you knew of to be on the blacklist. Like people were going out of their way to avoid someone that they knew to have communist ties. And so much, so many parallels between the naming of names, the court in particular. I was totally mistaken in this, and I think a lot of people probably are, that he wrote The Crucible based on his experience being questioned by the Committee of Un-American Activities. But in all actuality, he wrote The Crucible and then was questioned years later. And I can't even imagine what it would have been like sitting in that courtroom, getting hammered with these questions after you wrote this play that basically showcases the exact same thing that you are now living. It's just so wild. It would have felt so surreal. It really would have. One of the, um, one of the sources that I bring up during the tour that I have found really helpful, it's a super short article by Arthur Miller in the New York Times from 1953, right after the the play premieres in New York City. And he talks about his visit to Salem and how people didn't want to talk to him about it, about how he spends day after day sitting in the courtroom, because at the time when he came in the 1950s, the documents were still in the courthouse. And he talks about sitting there next to other people looking up wills and deeds. Did you talk about this? Yeah, we talked about this in our last episode, which hasn't aired yet, so Rebecca doesn't know anything. But yeah, I was I was like, this is so cool. But go ahead. Do you want me to say it? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's to your point about him then testifying several years later. My My personal opinion, and I know that this is not original at all, is that he really is rooting for John Proctor, right? And the way that John Proctor handles himself in this play. And when he's talking about reading these court documents and feeling like Rebecca Nurse and Giles Corey are more real than the people that are sitting next to him in the courtroom, uh, excuse me, in the courthouse at that time when he's doing the research, it is so clear that he is in that moment almost idolizing the people who maintained their innocence. The way that he ends uh, this article is he says, uh, the rock stands forever in Salem. Right, we still remember what happens. They knew who they were, 19. The 19 people who went to trial and said that they were innocent. And you can tell that the way that he writes the character of John Proctor, in my opinion, he is so on that side of when you acknowledge that the system is corrupt, it is your responsibility if you value your own integrity and your own character to say what's actually true you know, when you're put in that impossible situation. So, and of course, when he is put in that impossible situation in 1956, he refuses to name names. So I have no idea. I'm reading a huge amount of stuff into Arthur Miller's psyche, right? <laughs> but I have to imagine that he was thinking about John Proctor when he was going through that. It would make sense. So crazy. 
Have you guys talked at all about what the word crucible means? I was looking it up before this. I know there's several definitions, and one of them is just very weird. It's like a bowl or a jar that's supposed to be able to hold hot liquid. Am I right on that? Mm-hmm. This is something that I bring up to during the tour. So I'm giving a lot of spoilers, but you'll still have a good time. You should still come <laughs> on the tour. Go on the tour. Um, I first came across a crucible in my chemistry class. Oh. I didn't make the connection to the play that I had read in high school. But it's a ceramic dish or a metal dish, and you can put different types of chemicals or metal in it, put it under high temperature, you melt it down, and you're essentially, depending on what you have in there and what you're trying to do, you're either purifying the compound or you are creating a brand new alloy. And so asking yourself why the play is called the crucible is actually the most interesting part of the play, in my opinion. It's the most relatable part of the play. Because I'm guessing, right, the reason that he named it that is because of what the crucible literally is. It's a situation where you are put under the highest pressure, the highest heat that you've ever been in your life, and essentially your true character comes out. Or you're made into something new. So, uh, for I think probably everyone listening knows, uh, I was in the Marines. Uh, I was in the Marines for eight years. And... uh, when you join the Marine Corps, you go to uh, basic training to boot camp. It's three months of training to be a Marine. And that training culminates in a uh, three-day training exercise called the Crucible, where you are put through an unimaginable... <laughs> it's, it's, it's shit. It's horrible. It's hard. You've just gone through three months of hard. You then go through three days of harder. And and the point is not... To, I mean, the point of everything is to break you, but the, the Marines are weird. We're all weird. Um, but it, it, is, it is very difficult. And you are done with the Crucible. And when you are done with the Crucible, that is uh, when you are recognized as a Marine. And you don't, you don't change. You don't shower. You don't... You you've gone through this. I mean, you are covered in mud and like dirt. A transformative experience, like literally, and that training evolution ends, and you still have your your gear, your sweat, your dirt, and you were standing in line. Your drill instructors uh, come by with a little um, the Eagle Globe and anchor that you then wear um, in the Marines, and and they say congratulations, Marine, and and that's it. Difficult does not does not begin <laughs> to describe uh, the, those three days. Um, but transformative is, yeah. And then that, that experience. And so every time I think crucible, I mean, today it's, it's I think, you know, but that's where that word comes from for, for me. You know, like, yeah, no, I know what, what that means. It's an interesting question to pose to people because I don't think a lot of folks think about the title. Yeah. And I think at this point, we're all, we just associate for the most part crucible with the witch trials. Mm-hmm. The two have become synonymous, synonymous, but it was because of Arthur Miller that they have. Do you ask the question on tour? I talk about it on tour and I will, I will tell you this doesn't take away from the conversation. Um, one of the things that I ask people once we sit down to talk about the play is what would your crucible be? Ooh, you know, 
And if you don't want to think about it, it's okay because you can get yourself depressed. Yeah, thinking that's about super it, disturbing. Right? But like, if you really want to relate to what's going on in this play, right? This situation is probably not going to happen to you. Thank God. <laughs> but the Puritans were experiencing everything that they feared most, right? One after another. That was their crucible. I can't imagine, right? Like, obviously, their belief in the invisible world, and as you said, uh, the the what did you say? Jeffrey is waving his hand back and forth right now, so I'm, oh, okay, I was picturing fish. No, 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 you said uh, they they were interwoven um, uh, in the two. And to think it was, like, that that is a fear, and I I, I sometimes say this on tour, that I know that I will genuinely never understand. It's like if monsters were real. No, no, I'm scared, like, what are you, what are you that, I'm not that. Like, genuinely scared, no, genuinely real. Like if you if truly you, believe yeah. that mon- like a demogorgon is real and it's going to come and rip you to pieces, that's terrifying. And that must be, you know, as you bring up stranger things. <laughs> but like I remember in, in several scenes in that, they're like, oh, no, 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 by the way, uh, this this is a real demon thing. We're going to go fight it with fire and swords. And everyone, at, like there's like four or five other characters in the scene. They're like, oh, ha, ha, right. And all of a sudden they're like, <laughs> shit. Oh, but then make the demon invisible. Yeah. That just adds a whole different layer to it. Also Stranger Things. Also Stranger <laughs> So is there anything, before we move on to some just fun, basic questions about you and your time here in Salem, is there anything about the Crucible that you want to touch on? Did, did we miss anything? What, what do, I mean, you didn't hear last week's conversation or tomorrow's conversation. No. I hope you're proud of our <laughs> overview of Arthur Miller. Yeah. Of yeah. course I am. He was a fun character to learn about. Listeners, I am waiting with bated breath (laughs) for that episode to drop tomorrow. I will be listening to it with you. And it all goes back to the importance of context, right? I think that's amazing that you decided to talk about the author before you talked about the play. I'll just say this. There's a lot of stuff you can talk about with The Crucible. There's a lot of stuff that you can relate to. You can relate it to your own life now. And I think that, you know, when we're talking about... The things that mean the most to you, those are the things that you are then also the most afraid of. Just like the people that you love are the ones that you are the capable of fearing the most, right? And I think that is what is relatable about the characters because they're neighbors, they're family members, they're members of the same church. And even though it's harder for many of us to understand now, they their forebears, right? So by the time you get to 1692, it's like the the third generation of Puritans. Mm-hmm. Their forebears who came in the 1620s and 1630s, they believed that they were the new people Israel, like going back to the Old Testament or the Hebrew yeah. Bible, right? They believed that they were in a covenant with God. And that covenant was with God. It was a holy mission. Right? Like your relationship is with the supernatural being that controls the earth. And it's hard for us, for many of us to relate to, right? So they believed that this being that they loved so much was also the most fearsome and the most vengeful being that existed in the universe. And that was the person that they made their deal with. And so that's what was riding on their backs when they came here to start this utopian society called Salem. And then by the time you get to 1692, three generations have passed. And for those of you out there, my friends, who are sci-fi fans, you know what happens to utopian societies, don't you? (laughs) 
They don't work. They all become dystopias. This is Salem becoming the dystopia. That's what you are witnessing in 1692. And that is something that because we have so many wonderful stories that we've been telling in so many different types of popular culture right now in the 20th century, 21st century, you will absolutely be able to relate to the crucible. Wow. I'm like just you, re- resting you, in my head. Do you have a, a, a favorite crucible scene moment per character? Like, like or what's fact, fun fa- fact? Yeah, something like the, 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 that's it thing. Um, so Abigail Williams, I have several. I'll tell you one. Abigail Williams <laughs> and John Proctor in the play, not in real life, <laughs> have something in common. They both lift the veil sooner than anybody else in the play. They see the hypocrisy before anybody else does. And so when Abigail Williams you know, has that scene early on with him, and she's like, give me a soft word, John. I know who you are. You really love me, right? And, and then my favorite line comes next. Which is? Oh, let me see if I can remember it. Um, Though I think of you softly from time to time, I would sooner cut off my hand than reach for you again. It's a good one, isn't it? <laughs> so good. That was from memory. That was that good. Was, that's how much it impacted yeah. me, Jeffrey. I want to put it on a little sign and carry it around to me when I go to bars. <laughs> <laughs> Can tell everyone to just leave me alone. <laughs> you put on, like, you know those um, yeah. like cheeky business, no, no, like a business card? Oh, yeah. Like, like, like get those printed, Vista print, like a couple bucks, right? Yeah. And like some guys, like, can I have your number? And you're like, here you go. Yeah. <laughs> Screw off. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so... Around that time in the play, um, Proctor's basically like, what are you looking for from me here, Chicky?" right? Yeah. It's, when you look at it from a 21st century perspective, it is such a stereotypical older man with his mistress scene that it almost makes you want to vomit, yep. right? But then Abigail says, I look for John Proctor that took me from my sleep and put knowledge in my heart. I never knew what pretense Salem was. I never knew the lying lessons I was taught by all these Christian women and their covenanted men. And now you bid me tear the light out of my eyes? I will not. So not just talking about her losing her virginity to him, but also the Puritan society as a whole. Yeah, that's that's a layered... It's very layered. She sees it, right? And Proctor also sees it. And I won't share that quote with you because I need there to be something that you can enjoy <laughs> when you come on the tour. But they both see it. Um, and so I think that that's a clever device that Arthur Miller uses in the play. You don't necessarily catch it the first time that you see or you read the play because you're thinking of them in opposition to each other. Right. But they are related to each other in a way that the others are not because they see it first. Just another layer to his characters. So I've, I, I, I've got a question. Other, maybe you know the answer, and we, maybe we can just get into it. Um, and this is something Sarah pointed out to me in the movie. What's with the teeth? Oh my god! I, you read my mind. <laughs> I was, I wasn't gonna say anything about it. What? How can we not address the teeth? But I was thinking about it about ninety seconds ago. So, have you noticed? Did you notice when you recently? watched the movie the 1996 version which i didn't notice until i watched it a second time though john proctor's teeth get progressively worse like 
hor- like it looks like decades worth of damage by so the end of the movie. My... It's bizarre. Yeah, so I, I I think it's it's probably a, a a very easily identifiable degradation of situation, right? So right. Start... they want to convey the amount of time that has passed. No, no, I don't think time. I think uh, uh, situation. The situation's getting worse. So it starts in the beginning, and he's cheeky and smiley and talking to Abigail. And it's only been six months, although maybe in the movie it seems like longer than that. And and his position's gotten worse. He has fallen. He is now on the out now. He's going to die. And as we see, we might you might not have clocked it the first time, like in the front of your head, but in the back there's a little something that tells you that you're like, the situation is getting worse as he's like, you know... They've also been in jail for months, right? and the conditions are horrible. Tell me, did you notice the teeth? Of course I noticed the teeth. <laughs> I'm an American. We're obsessed with teeth. Yes, we are. <laughs> oh, so funny. Nothing against bad teeth or anything. No, 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 no. It, it, it just got if like... If your teeth look like that, brush your teeth... Brush your teeth. ...more than once a month. My question for you is, why is there not like a special note at the end of the film about like the character, the separate character of Daniel Day-Lewis's chest. <laughs> because it deserves to be its own character in the film version of the play. When it is on display at that pivotal moment when he's standing in the water. Oh my God. Before he is apprehended. Yep. And he literally spreads his arms out to the side in yep. a crucifix and screams that God is dead. That right there is a little precious concentrated nugget of the 90s that's what that is that is daniel day lewis at his best you know what it kind of reminded me of um a little bit of the uh the shirtless scene in um oh i'm gonna screw this up and then feel horrible but it's also the uh, sequel trilogy star wars and the Kylo Ren, and, mm-hmm. you, and he doesn't have it, and he's mm-hmm. like, and you're like what on earth did i just see where yep. did that come from yeah mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Sorry, that was my cheeky contribution. No. No, no, I no. love it. I love it. Now I'm going to really go back and not notice the teeth so much. Notice the chest. But the chest. All right. So stepping slightly away from the crucible, we got some rapid fire Salem questions for you. Favorite place to get coffee? Are you a coffee drinker, I should ask? Um, I do enjoy coffee. My head does not. Okay. <laughs> tea? I, I enjoy tea. Um, I am a migraineur. So I have to be careful. Okay. Um, I really enjoy uh, Front Street. Beautiful. Um, I enjoy Wolf Next Door. Ooh. I enjoy Redline and for all different things. I got a, a new question that I'm going to start asking people. I have no idea what she's going to say. This is legit news. She's looking at me funny. So if you had to choose between the following three people for a date. What? Uh, oh, no. Hold on. Hold on. Who would it hold be? Hold on. Are you Who gonna- would it be? You know, I, oh, I know what she's going to say. Nathaniel Hawthorne. Yeah. McIntyre. Samuel McIntyre. <laughs> and Elias Haskett Derby. Yes. Oh, my good God. And Elias had- Haskett Derby every time. Really? <laughs> yes. Really? Every time. <laughs> Why? I want to see his polychromatic eyes. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> and I want to ask him how he was able to make all of those business deals without people hating him. I also really want to ask him what it was truly like being an in-law of the Crown and Shields. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's fair. Are you McIntyre? I think I would be McIntyre. Yeah. 
I think McIntyre is more my speed. <laughs> Who's your favorite witcher wizard? Gandalf. So many beards. It's the beard envy. I love it. Yeah, yeah. How about your favorite thing about Salem? The ocean. I love that. It's hard to say that because in my job, I get to learn so many things about Salem. Mm -hmm. But the absolute number one reason why I came here was the ocean. Oh, yeah. We didn't really talk much about uh, where she came from. This is going to be quite fitting with our episode that we released prior to this. Rebecca's from Ohio. Oh, good God. You guys going to fight? No. No, we're not going to fight. I'm not a football fan, so we're safe here. Cool, cool. I had to explain to Jeffrey in our last... State and university in Michigan and Ohio and blood feuds and uh, disgraced children. It went a little... (laughs) How close were you to the Great Lakes? Uh, Very. I grew up just east of Cleveland. Okay, so that makes sense. It's, I will say, it is very nice going from that environment to an ocean because... As someone who's born and raised in Michigan, you really, I can't imagine living in a landlocked state to have those lakes there, which are kind of like mini oceans. They are. They do have waves. People surf in them, Mm -hmm. don't they? People surf in our lakes. Tell me a lake in Massachusetts that you can surf in. I don't know. We have an ocean. We have lakes the size of Massachusetts. (laughs) Exactly. I have an ocean. I can see, if I walked out, I could see the ocean. Just saying, it makes the Midwest kind of cool. Jeffrey, we, we moved here. Yeah, I, I, so. <laughs> I, I do appreciate I love the water. Where I grew up was perfect for me to grow up. Um, and I have a great appreciation for where I'm from. Um, but it's always been a dream to live near the ocean. So I'm at this point in my life, I'm very happy to be here. Well, we are happy to have you. That's for sure. So if you would like to come on the Crucible tour with me. The dates are set. They are on my website, dynamichistorysalem.com, February 24th, February 25th, April 21st, and April 22nd, and they are during Massachusetts school holidays. And if you have any questions, feel free to, to get in contact with me. I'd be very happy to talk to you about that tour or anything else. Is there anything that you would like to plug or mention before we leave them? Sarah and Jeffrey are very kind. I am giving a fundraiser tour for the Salem Pantry the day after Christmas on Boxing Day, December 26th, 6 o'clock to 7.30. It's called Ghosts of Salem Past, and it is based on the idea of the Christmas Carol. I'll be talking about stories from Salem's past that continue to haunt and teach us in the present. There's a sliding scale for tickets, so you can pay full price, half price, or zero dollars to come on the tour, and all proceeds will go to the Salem Pantry. That sounds fabulous. Very nice. I must say, I appreciate all the work you do, not just telling the stories. We all know that what we do is not the easiest, but you take it a step further. Salem has given me a lot. Very uh, dynamic. Oh, very Sorry. nice, Jeffrey. <laughs> That's how I roll, Jeffrey. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so, so much, Rebecca, for taking the time to sit down and chat about Arthur Miller and his crucible with us. Any last thoughts, Jeffrey? No. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we appreciated having you here and your, your expert knowledge on, on The Crucible. And uh... Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being on the show. I really appreciate the conversation. And we will plug all of Rebecca's info in the show notes.
again, if, if anyone's uh, interested in coming to Salem, uh, looking to do a, a, a tour on any of the topics uh, they covered, reach out to you. Uh, check that out. Otherwise, thanks for listening. See you later. Thank you.